continuing in Acts 16. Chapter 13, sorry, uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. All right. <clears throat> Nikolai said he was going to keep reading this. It's good because these these stories are are tied together, and we're we're going to look at multiple of them tonight as we jump in. I'm trying to think if there was something else I was supposed to say. I feel like there was, but I don't know. So tonight we're going to keep moving through the book of Acts. We have a guest speaker next week, but tonight we're finishing, well, we're looking at Acts chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at three case studies, three stories that we, we see here in uh, Acts 16. Three unique stories. I know we only read really two, but we're going to look at three. Uh, so you'll have some homework. You can read on your own this week, the rest of this chapter. Um, last week, Max opened the word for us, and, and we looked at the Macedonian call. How many of you guys were here last week? Awesome. And it's on the podcast. If you weren't, go ahead and check it out. It was good. I love that section of scripture, that story of the Macedonian call, because sometimes God's leading, his directing us doesn't always fully make sense, Right? They're on this mission trip, they're, they're uh, going, retracing their steps, and the Holy Spirit prevented them from doing anything, from sharing the gospel in Asia, and modern-day Turkey. It gives them this vision, this vision of this Macedonian man. He, Paul sees in a dream or a vision of the night, he sees this picture of a man in Macedonia calling, saying, come help us. You guys remember all this from last week? Let's review 
And so Paul and this missionary band now of at least four guys, we know it's Paul, Silas, they've got Timothy with them, and the way Luke now tells the story, he's using, he says, we, from now on out, from here on out. So Luke is with them, we, we assume at this point. They're on their way, they're on a, on a journey now to Macedonia. They land, eventually they find their way to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony in modern day, now it's now positioned in, in modern day Greece. And it was a Roman colony, it was the leading city sort of of, of the district, founded by uh, Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, and when he seized the city, he founded it. He named it after himself. He enlarged the city because it was known for its gold mining operations. This was a wealthy, prosperous city. Came under Roman rule in 168 B.C., was enlarged in 42 B.C., uh, and has a lot of history. This was a, a Roman colony, not just a city within the empire, but this was a Roman colony. And what that means is that a number, a good percentage of retired military men had taken up residency there. When you were in the Roman military, you served as a centurion, you were a Roman citizen. And when you retire, you can actually help. They, they formed these, these colonies. And so Philippi was known for this population of Roman retired military professionals. Heavy Roman influence in this city. You'll see in, in Paul's letters, he writes to this church that's about to be birthed. We're going to look at the planting of this church in Philippi. Very much so, this is like a little Rome. A little mini uh, version of Rome. So they show up after receiving this vision of a man in Macedonia. If you remember from last week, who do they meet? A woman. He receives this vision of a man who's asking for help in Macedonia, and he shows up here in Philippi, and... He meets a woman. What we're going to look at tonight, three case studies, three testimonies and stories of these individuals that would become the church planting core group in Philippi, which is important because Philippi is the first church planted in Europe. This is the beginning of the mission that would spread through Europe. We're going to look at this tonight, three different stories. I think it's probable that the missionaries, these guys, this group of at least four, probably spent weeks in Philippi. They spent some time here. We don't really know. I'm just assuming that they spent some time here. And it's probable that lots of people came to faith. That lots of people, there's lots of stories of people who confessed Jesus as their master and began to serve him. But as is typical in scripture, all we have is these three encounters that Luke tells. Luke gives us three stories as an example 
of the overarching thing that happened, this revival church plant that takes place in Philippi. Luke only records three. Probably with a very specific intention there. I think he's, he's trying to show the way God is, is working in planting this church and the way this new kingdom thing that God is doing is, is functioning. As we look at these three testimonies, I want you to think of them as testimonies. The, the scripture says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So when we read these stories, or when we tell our testimony, when we talk about what God has done in your life, when God has, what God has done amongst us, that there's a spirit of prophecy to that. Like, we should read these stories, and we should be provoked and say, God, do it again. That's the point of these stories. My hope is that as we look at these, that, that uh, these encounters would do two things. That it would encourage us, that we see Jesus' power, his grace as he's transforming people, but also that it would instruct us. I think there are things that we can learn from these three stories. So, we're going to look at these three stories first church plant in Europe. Three different stories. We have Lydia, which we began to look at last week. We have a demon-possessed slave girl, and we have a Roman jailer. Three specific stories. Let's take them one by one, and I'm just, we're not going to read all the scripture. I just kind of want to tell the story. Lydia, the wealthy woman, So apparently, as we talked about last week, Philippi didn't have a Jewish synagogue. Paul's custom was to go and find the synagogue. He'd look for the people who had pre-existing religious interest. So he'd look for the synagogue. But in the diaspora, in the spreading of the Jewish nation, the requirement was to have 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. Apparently, there wasn't 10 Jewish men in this center of Philippi. There was no synagogue. Which is, again, fascinating that that's the vision that brought Paul there was a man. And when he shows up on the Sabbath day, he goes to the closest thing he could find. Which is a prayer meeting down by the river. A place of prayer located outside the city gates down by the river. And they begin to speak with some women there. One of them was named Lydia. She was from a city called Thyatira, which is a place uh, in the province of Asia in modern-day Turkey. It was outside of the area. This is what we know about Lydia. She was a seller of purple linen, purple, purple fabric. Makes sense, Thyatira was the center of the purple dye trade. She definitely, most certainly, was wealthy. She had some means. Purple goods was expensive. It was clearly associated with royalty and with wealth. Business was profitable. She was wealthy. Tim Keller 
in talking about this woman, Lydia, he says that you can think of her as, as, as an owner of an upscale beauty boutique. She had some means behind her. The fact that we know that she hosts in her home implies that she had substantial resources. She had a home and resources. She was an entrepreneur. She set up business here in the city of Philippi and had a measure of professional success. She was doing okay for herself. But despite all of that success, despite her money, her resources, her, her wealth, and her house, something's missing. Something's not quite right. She's still searching for more. Luke says that she's a God-fearer. She's like Cornelius was, not quite a Jew. She hasn't gone that far, but she, she respects and she, she believes in the one true God. She somehow has heard the stories of the Old Testament, the testimonies of Yahweh, and she believes something beyond the wealth and power and prestige and everything that she has. She's seeking God. She's interested. So she's at the river amongst this prayer meeting of the ladies. Verse 14 says something interesting. It says, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. What does that mean? What does that mean to have your heart opened? I think it means that the God of all grace, the God of, of power, opened her up, opened the eyes of her heart, her spiritual eyes, to see her need and see the reality of Jesus. And she embraces Jesus as Messiah and as Lord. God did something in her heart, and she received a new life. She heard the gospel, and her heart became awake. She was ultimately won over by Paul as he effectively communicated the gospel. So here we see, this is, and it's fascinating to me, this is the first person on European soil to confess faith in Jesus. The first convert in Europe is this woman, at least that we have recorded. Wealthy lady named Lydia. I love the simpleness and the, the quietness of this what would be a world-changing scenario, like the mission of God is moving into Europe. It's going to change everything. And where does it happen? It happens in the simpleness of a prayer meeting down by a river outside of town. Honestly, the setting probably resembled more of a picnic than what you would think of a traditional prayer meeting. And Paul explains the gospel of the Messiah Jesus. He, he opens the scriptures. 
And this woman begins to follow King Jesus. There's no drama even in the story. It's just she's convinced. Her heart, something changed inside of her. The Lord is at work. Here's the thing. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, if you're a believer in this room, it's important that we remember that the Lord still does this kind of work. He still is at work opening people's hearts. When you tell the story of King Jesus, when you open the scriptures and talk to your neighbor, this is what the Holy Spirit does. No drama necessarily, but he opens their heart to receive. When the Bible is taught, when the scriptures are opened, your Lydia is waiting. Their hearts can be opened. God does this in people's lives. He opens their hearts. And if you're not a believer, if you haven't followed Jesus, this is the good news. Read the scripture. Let your heart be opened. See if the Lord might do something through that. So Lydia, she surrenders to Jesus. She makes a confession of faith. She's baptized. Along with her whole household, she's baptized. Probably includes her servants. The word household there is this Greek word uh, oikos, which means like her whole sphere of influence. This is a wealthy businesswoman, an entrepreneur in, in a foreign city for her. She probably had a whole business and, and servants and, and house people and, and people around her. That word household includes all of them. Her whole household, which means she immediately goes back and shares what just happened in her heart. She becomes the first evangelist here. She, she, and I'm sure with Paul and Silas and Timothy, they go and they share the good news to the household. They confess their faith and they're also baptized. Not only does Lydia share her faith with her household, but she shares her home with the missionaries. She opens her home, which becomes a missions base for what's about to happen in this church that's about to be planted. Her home becomes the location where they would gather in the future. And I love the simple things here, but the way Luke puts this, let's just read this, verse 15. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And Luke says, She prevailed upon us. It's a simple thing. But that word prevailed implies like a logical debate. This woman, she's, she's a smart, smart woman. And she had a reasoned debate with one of the smartest guys we know in Scripture, with Paul. 
And he, apparently, it would imply he wasn't wanting to go and use her house. But she prevailed on him. She convinced Paul that that would be a good idea. I just thought that was interesting. She won the argument with Paul. The Pharisee of Pharisees. The debater. (laughs) What do we learn from Lydia? First off, I think she's an amazing example of generosity and hospitality that we see here. Especially, I mean, we're getting ready to, to launch into this next season of Story and Table, for those of you who signed up. Those of you who haven't, that a lot of other people have, just go have dinner with them. Jump into their groups. Feel free. You're not intruding. Later, Paul, in, in the book of Philippians, he's going to write about the incredible generosity of this church that's about to be planted, their support. It's not hard to imagine the way that she prevailed upon him that he probably is thinking about Lydia, how she opened her house immediately to the work of the gospel. And once again, as we've seen several times here in the book of Acts, that the people opened their homes. Your home This applies directly to us here, especially with story and table about to happen. Your home is an incredible tool for fellowship, for community, for ministry. It's an incredible resource. And I think this is a very practical reminder for us to practice hospitality, to open our homes and to to invite people in to share. So we see Lydia, this strong, influential, entrepreneurial lady. She's not the only one, by the way. In, in the book of Acts, you'll meet, we will meet several strong ladies. It's a good story for, for women in the early first century here. The, the women play a huge role in extending the ministry of the local church, opening their homes, in even even teaching. There's lots of different things that women do, instruction here. The book of Acts highlights lots of them. We'll look at them as we get through. Second case study, slave girl. So we go from the wealthy, entrepreneurial, boss lady to a demon-possessed slave girl. This young, tormented girl. And what a contrast, right, that Luke is drawing out here. The contrast really couldn't be any greater. The slave girl was a demon-possessed fortune teller. The phrase that that we have here, the the spirit by which she predicted the future, or a spirit of divination, there's different translations there. 
the, the word behind that is actually, literally, it means a spirit of python, which is interesting, right? That's, your English translations don't just say that because we would scratch our heads and be like, what does that mean? But a spirit of python is, is, according to mythology of the day, the python guarded the temple of Apollo. And over time, in the Greek language, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person who possessed the spirit of python and spoke fortune-telling, would do so through altering their voice. The, the demon would, would show up in different tones and screeches and, and different ways that that would come out. And apparently, the locals considered her this oppressed slave girl to be inspired by Apollo or this, this python spirit. Many would go to her to hear her predictions about the future and to hear the things that she would say. We know from verse 16 that they were... They were capitalizing on this. The people who were oppressing her were, were making a living off this. They were exploiting her, making a large profit. Don't miss, though, that she's not just oppressed by demons. She's also a slave girl. She's being exploited through and through, manipulated. Her slave owners treat her like property, and at the same time, she's abused by a demonic spirit. Double bondage. She is in captivity. I think what we see here is the enemy, our enemy, trying to derail the work of the missionaries. He's trying to take these missionaries' work in Philippi and attempting sort of to tie them to his own plans, his own agenda. Satan's trying to use this slave girl to associate Paul and the gospel message that he's bringing with the occult. Paul has enough. He won't put up with it. For many days, this slave girl uttered things that honestly are, are true. Paul didn't play into it. Many times the gospel uh, shows demon-possessed people who say even true things to Jesus and about Jesus. Many times they, they profess things that might seem true. Jesus rebukes them every time. I love what happens next, the humanity of this. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out. That word crying out means like screeching. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept going, she kept doing from, yeah, she kept, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
Why did Paul cast the demon out? Because he was greatly annoyed. Some of the commentators will, like, downplay this, actually. If you read some of the commentators, they're like, Paul had compassion on this slave girl. No, Paul was annoyed. This demonic girl is following, him, following them around for days, screeching and moaning and howling. And he gets annoyed. He's fed up. I just, I appreciate the humanity of that. And he frees her with a word. Simple word. In Jesus' name. In a moment, Jesus frees this little girl of the demon that's oppressing her. Casts out the demons that are working through her. Because Jesus crushes the serpent, right? That's what we know. No python can stand against Jesus. The power of Christ is on display in this little girl. And she's set free in a moment. Even through the annoyance of Paul. Isn't that a little bit liberating? Guys, Paul got annoyed and God still used it. She's delivered. What a relief that must have been for this little girl. Remember the demoniac in the, in the scriptures, the, in the, the gospel stories, in, in Mark. When he was suddenly in his right mind, this girl is freed, set free from the oppression of this demonic power. We presume, we assume that she became a follower of Jesus after this deliverance. And at once, she has a new owner, Jesus, the good shepherd, the, the Lord Jesus, who has freed her and saved her, set her free. Now contrast with me. Just think through these two first stories. Lydia was wealthy. The slave girl was poor. Lydia was a community member of high standing. The slave girl was exploited and abused. Lydia was religious and moral. She was upright. The slave girl was broken and tormented. Lydia comes to faith through a quiet Bible study down by the river. The slave girl gets transformed through a dramatic power encounter in an annoyed preacher. Lydia was presented with Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. The slave girl met Jesus as the powerful liberator. The deliverer. These two ladies, the different backgrounds, completely different. They're both brought to the same Jesus. What a reminder for us that the gospel is at work and can transform regardless of people's background, regardless of people's stories or where they're at currently. The same power 
that brought the evil spirit out of this girl was at work in that quiet conversation. In the opening of Lydia's heart. This is the same power that's at work amongst you and I as we share our faith and talk about Jesus. Maybe some of us want to sort of distance ourselves from the stories of this dramatic power and this demon. We like the quiet Bible study. Maybe you assume you can't relate. This passage is one of incredible hope, though. If Jesus, through an annoyed preacher, can free an exploited, demonized slave girl, for sure he can break addictions. For sure he can set you free from your negative thinking, from whatever holds you in bondage from whatever keeps you captive, for sure Jesus has the power to do that. Third story here. I'm going to run out of time. The jailer. As in the story of the demoniac in the Gospels, this slave girl's deliverance upset the economy. We're going to actually look at this much more in depth, this next story, in a couple weeks, but I just wanted to hit on it tonight. This disrupts the economy. These people were profiteering off of her, exploiting her for money. The owners of this girl are about to lose a lot of money because her power is gone. So these angry angry. Uh, slave owners, they make false charges against Paul and Silas, and they have them gathered together and beaten and thrown in jail. The crowds join in. They beat them with rods. Just real quick, this begs the question, because we know from the story, right, it's Paul and Silas in the jail. Where's Timothy? Where's Luke? I don't know. It just makes me wonder. We don't have time tonight to really do justice to the story. We're going to look at it in two weeks further. But it's really difficult for you and I to imagine undergoing the excruciating torture that Paul and Silas went through. Beaten with rods, their backs were bloodied, swollen, Sticky with blood, wounded, and they are thrown in jail and bound. The jailer keeps them prison as secure as possible. All of this makes their deliverance that's about to happen all the more dramatic. Remember in Acts 12, Peter slept while he was in prison. And now, you guys know the story, Paul and Silas are singing hymns after they've been beaten, falsely, falsely jailed, 
thrown into the dungeon. They're singing. Those who heard the men's voices surely were astonished by this example of trust and faith in the midst of suffering unjust accusations. Silas and Paul, I imagine this, they're, they're quoting psalms or they're singing hymns. They're, they're encouraging each other. They're, their hearts are full while they're experiencing this agony of torture. I imagine the other prisoners listening eagerly. And we know from the story there's an earthquake. The prison doors are opened. The, the chains that bind them are broken and they're free to go. Free to go. We just looked. The breaking chains is something the Lord does, right? He sets people free. They were unjustly thrown there. With no good reason, they were thrown in this jail. They were beaten unjustly. The Lord shows up in a supernatural way in an earthquake, and he opens the prison doors, breaks the chains and the bonds that hold them. Most of us would probably think, that's God setting me free. I'm going to take off. What do they do? They stayed put. These guys are odd. They stay put. They stay there. The chains are falling off. The scene is chaotic. The jailer panics. He's afraid of the consequences that are for sure to come. This is a retired Roman soldier. The only thing he has to live for is his honor. He knows the consequences for letting these prisoners go free. So he's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas could go free. But they pause and they save this man's life. Verse 27, the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer calls out for light. He rushes in and he falls down before Paul and Silas and he says these words. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The question makes sense. He'd heard the story for sure. He's, he put them in jail for setting a demon-possessed girl free. He runs in and he says, what must I do to be saved? He'd probably been listening to their songs as they were singing. Paul points the jailer to the only name that can save, to Jesus. The same savior of Lydia and that slave girl. He points this Roman centurion, this Roman jailer to Jesus. Jesus can, effectively what he's saying is, Jesus can transform you. 
He can transform you and your whole family. That's our message. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we share. Jesus can transform you. We know the rest of the story. The whole family. He, he is so excited. He takes these prisoners and he invites them into his home. He, he cleans their wounds and he gives them a meal. And they share the good news with him and his family and they're all baptized. No longer does this jailer view them as prisoners. They are now brothers. This is the way the church is supposed to work. This blue-collared, simple jailer, probably, I picture this guy sort of stuck in the mundane, day-to-day, seen it all, Not moved by anything. He's jolted and comes to faith by a miracle. But not the miracle of the earthquake and the, the chains breaking down, but of Paul and Silas staying put. Not leaving. He's converted, brought to faith. No one is beyond reach of King Jesus. Three stories, three case studies that we see, three testimonies. Lydia, this wealthy, God-fearing woman, she hears the gospel in a quiet Bible study. Slave girl, poor, tormented. Dramatically set free by an annoyed preacher. And the jailer, this Roman, blue-collared, practical, indifferent guy, set free by this powerful miracle. Three completely different people, three completely different backgrounds, three completely different lifestyles. The same Jesus, the same power, the same gospel affects all of them. And forms this church in Philippi that becomes the beachhead of the gospel spreading throughout the whole world. These stories are incredible. This is the way the church was founded in in Europe. These stories show, ultimately, God's incredible power to bring people together. I find it incredible, as I was studying it this week, these three stories that Luke put together. Three unique stories. The Jews of his day would pray this prayer. Every morning when they got up, they would pray this prayer that is almost horrible to even say now, but they would pray this simple thing. They'd say, God, thank you, I'm paraphrasing, but thank you that I was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Every morning, this is what Paul probably woke up, he was a a Pharisee, this was the, the common prayer of the Pharisees. And in the morning they they would pray, thank you God that I was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. It's not an accident that Luke picks these three stories. It's in direct opposition to the, the prevailing way that Israel was going. 
What the Lord was doing with the church was something unique. As the church in Philippi is planted, it's planted with those three categories. A woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile. It's not an accident. That's the foundation, the core group of this plant in Philippi. Philippi, historians call it this little colony of the kingdom of Rome, is now all of a sudden this little colony of the kingdom of heaven. This outpost of the kingdom. And later, Paul will, will pen this letter, Philippians, to this church. Unlike any of his other letters, every letter that Paul writes has some form of critique or rebuke. Philippians is unique because it doesn't contain those. There's no condemnation, no rebuke. Paul is pleased with the maturity and the generosity of these brothers and sisters in this church. He's filled with joy and encouragement. Read the book of of Philippians. So joyful. He writes this, Philippians chapter 1, 3 through 6. I thank God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you, always, always, For every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For sure, Paul is thinking about these three individuals as he pens those words. Who knows? This is speculation, but maybe it was the slave girl who received Paul's letter and reads it to the church. It probably was in Lydia's house. Maybe it was the Roman jailer. What is for sure is that God would complete the good work that he started in them. That he would bring it to completion and he would establish a church here in Philippi. I want to look at a couple other quotes from Philippians just to encourage us and we'll close with that. As Paul's thinking about this church, Philippians 1.27 let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A church that diverse That plural, can you see why he's writing this? Philippians 2, 1 through 11, some of my favorite chunks of scripture. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any uh, any comfort from love, any participation with the Spirit, any affection of sympathy and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. 
this famous passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind, uh, mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the way of Jesus. This is, this is why Paul's writing this. This church and Philippi, they didn't all agree. I can guarantee you, when you put people from that varying context together, there were some disagreements. There were some challenges in the way they got along together. Some disagreements on what they should eat, where they should meet, how things should work, Probably some disagreements on theology. I imagine there's some debates on politics in this group. And Jesus says, you have one Lord, one Savior. It is by one power that you have come into this church. Was it always easy for them? I'm sure not. I'm sure there was some annoying times. So it was messy and complicated. But it was in that context that a church was born. It was in that context that a church was planted. Let's pray. Worship together. Father, I thank you for these stories, these testimonies of your faithfulness, your kindness, your power. God, I thank you that there is power in the name of Jesus. And God, as we talk about you, as we open our mouth and quote scripture or talk about what you've done, God, that you were at work opening people's hearts like you did in Lydia. that you are at work, you go before us. God, I pray that you would give us understanding of what you're doing, like Paul and Silas must have had to know not to run away in that moment when they could have freed themselves. You give us discernment to hear your voice, to follow you, as you lead us and guide us. Jesus, we trust you, and we lean on you. In your name, amen.